News Talk 1110, 99.3 WBT, the Pete Callender Show. Hour number two, phone number 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. The J6 show has uh, just started up. Day six of the J6. Surprise! New evidence. Uh, testimony from the former aide to Mark Meadows. I forget her name. I'm sorry. Uh, so this is Liz Cheney. Let's say let, let's just eavesdrop. We'll 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 join it in progress. We're going to jip it. JIP. Let's listen. It. Recall that Ms. Hutchinson once worked for House Republican Whip Steve Scalise, but she is also a familiar face on Capitol Hill because she held a prominent role in the White House Legislative Affairs Office and later was the principal aide to President Trump's Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows. Ms. Hutchinson has spent considerable time up here on Capitol Hill representing the Trump administration, and we welcome her back. Up until now, our hearings have each been organized to address specific elements of President Trump's plan to overturn the 2020 election. Today, we are departing somewhat from that model because Uh Ms. Hutchinson's testimony touches on several important and cross-cutting topics, topics that are relevant to each of our future hearings. In her role working for the White House Chief of Staff, Ms. Hutchinson handled a vast number of sensitive issues. She worked in the West Wing, several steps down the hall from the Oval Office. Ms. Hutchinson spoke daily with members of Congress, with high-ranking officials in the administration, with senior White House staff, including Mr. Meadows, with White House counsel lawyers, and with Mr. Tony Ornato, who served as the White House Deputy Chief of Staff. She also worked on a daily basis with members of the Secret Service who were posted in the White House. In short, Ms. Hutchinson was in a position to know a great deal about the happenings in the Trump White House. Ms. Hutchinson has already sat for four videotaped interviews with committee investigators, and we thank her very much for her cooperation and for her courage. We will cover certain, but not all, relevant topics within Ms. Hutchinson's knowledge today. All right, I'm Again, out. our future oh, hearings gosh, will supply God, greater take detail. It, take it down, take it down. Just get, oh. Holy smokes. Didn't they have a TV person or something working on selling this thing to me? Ugh. They, they, see, this is the problem. They want to they pretend that it is a quasi-judicial process here. They want to pretend that this is a trial of some sort. So they want all of the gravitas and credibility of an adversarial format without actually providing an adversarial format. All right, I was going to get to the Hunter Biden stuff. I, I, I do intend to do that, but hang on a second. Let me go over here. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it live. I'm going to do it now. Um, in the stack of the J6 stuff. See, but once I go down this path, I'm going to be down the path. And there we are. There we go. Anyway. Exhibit number 170 billion. Why the adversarial format provides credibility. All right. There was a lawyer at the Department of Justice named Ken Klukowski or Klukowski. And he is now demanding that the J6 committee release the full transcript of his deposition testimony to correct the lies that the J6 committee told about him to the American public. 
TheFederalist.com has exclusively obtained a statement from a former White House staffer confirming Klukowski's claims. So what ha- so uh, last Thursday, the committee is presenting testimony concerning a letter that was drafted uh, by Jeff Clark, a former assistant attorney general in the DOJ. And this letter was supposed to go to the Georgia General Assembly. Um, it stated that the DOJ was investigating the election. The Georgia legislature should convene a special session to evaluate the irregularities and um, determine whether the violations show which candidate for president won the most legal votes. And then the draft letter suggested that they could then appoint the General Assembly of Georgia could appoint an alternative set of electors based on its findings. Okay. The draft letter signature line included spaces for Jeff Clark, the guy who drafted it, the acting attorney general, Jeffrey A. Rosen, and acting deputy attorney general, Richard Donahue. But when Clark pitched the idea of sending this letter, Rosen and Donahue said no. They rejected the idea. So how does this guy Klukowski figure into all of this? Well, Klukowski went to work for Clark shortly before all of this stuff happened. And the committee focused on Clark and his efforts to have the letter sent to Georgia, but they also connected Klukowski to this effort and lied in the process of doing so, he says. He put out a statement, said, quote, the committee falsely accused me of being a go-between in a conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election, that accusation is both uh, is false, both in broad outlines and in its details. Since the committee first contacted me, I have cooperated without hesitation, provided it with hundreds of documents, and sat for many hours of recorded depositions. The information produced from those efforts fully contradicts the committee's statements regarding my actions, yet the committee has chosen to keep that information to itself rather than share it with the public. Liz Cheney, he says, uh, provided a false portrayal of him as being sent by John Eastman to go work under Jeff Clark. But Klukowski provided evidence that actually he went over to the DOJ civil division so he could get more litigation experience. He had actually asked for a transfer like in September or something. There was another guy named Andrew Kloster who is responsible for coordinating senior appointments in the DOJ. And he confirmed that. He said Ken's transfer had nothing to do with the election. He goes on to say that the January 6th investigation is all about attacking mid-level and senior-level staff like Ken to ensure that we don't have a farm team in 2024, no matter who the president is. This isn't about truth, but about making it impossible for conservatives to successfully enter and then leave government. Klukowski also denounced the committee for falsely suggesting that he was working with Eastman to convince Mike Pence that Pence had the power to reject electors from various states. In fact, Klukowski told the committee that he disagreed with that. He would never he never did advise Mike Pence, nor would he have done so because he disagrees with that theory. And he told them all of this. Yet the J6 committee says that he was working for Eastman. Klukowski also took issue with the committee's portrayal of him as an author of the letter from Jeff Clark's office. 
He says, look, I just I just took dictation. Clark would read, he would say what he wanted, and I just wrote, I just typed it up and then left the lines blank for everybody to sign. Klukowski said, quote, I was concerned the committee might make cynical assumptions during its investigation of J6, but I was stunned that the committee would make claims about me for which it had a mountain of evidence establishing for certain those statements were false. See, in an adversarial format, we would have gotten all of this information out because his representatives would also have been involved in trying to find truth. This is why I have no faith in the credibility of this committee. And I'm sorry. I was one who said, let Mueller investigate. I wanted to see that thing through. I want to hear all that he had to find. But this, it's got no credibility because there's no adversarial format. News Talk 1110 993 WBT. I say it like that. WBT. 704-570-1110-1800 WBT 1110. Did I already give the numbers? I mean, at some point in the program I did. I'm just watching the testimony. Cassidy Hutchinson. I'm trying to think if I ever actually interacted with her. I, I don't recognize her. But when Meadows was chief of staff, because I knew Meadows from Asheville, because he was the congressman from over there, and uh, had him on the show many, many times. And when he went to work at the White House, I would, you know, oh, my gosh, I may end up getting subpoenaed for that. No, I'm not going to get subpoenaed for this. He didn't. Once he got to the White House, he didn't really need me anymore. So there were no more. There wasn't a lot of interaction after that. Um, Cassidy Hutchinson, she is the former aide to Mark Meadows, and she is testifying. Well, let's take a listen. She's going to tell us who uh, who asked for the pardons. I talked to him about intelligence reports. I remember Mr. Renato coming in and saying that we had intel reports saying that there could potentially be violence on the, on the 6th. Okay. You also told us about reports of violence and weapons that the Secret Service were receiving mm-hmm. on the night of January 5th and throughout the day on January 6th. Is that correct? That's correct. There are reports that police in Washington, D.C. had arrested several people with firearms or ammunition following a separate pro-Trump rally in Freedom Plaza on the evening of January 5th. Are those some of the reports that you recall hearing about? They are. Of course, the world now knows that the people who attacked the Capitol on January 6th had many different types of weapons. When a president speaks, the Secret Service typically requires those attending to pass through metal detectors, known as magnetometers, or MAGs for short. The Select Committee has learned that people who willingly entered the enclosed area for President Trump's speech were screened so they could attend the rally at the Ellipse. They had weapons and other items that were confiscated. Pepper spray, knives, brass knuckles, tasers, body armor, gas masks, batons, blunt weapons. And those were just from the people who chose to go through the security for the president's event on the ellipse, not the several thousand members of the crowd who refused to go through the mags and watched from the lawn near the Washington Monument. The select committee has learned about reports from outside the magnetometers and has obtained police radio transmissions identifying right, individuals right, right. Okay. with fire. Right, right, so hang on a second. So is it so you, 
you bring her in here to to start laying out the case that what there were people that brought weapons and that and that the White House was aware of the potential for violence the day before. So here's a question. Was Nancy Pelosi aware of the potential for violence the day before? Because that that would be her call to secure the Capitol. It was her call. It's her building, right? I mean, where was Chuck Schumer? Were they cut out of that? Did they not know that there were weapons found? Did the Capitol Police not talk to the people who run the Capitol? Is that what happened? See, this is the problem with with a format that is designed to act as a lecture rather than a truth-finding endeavor. It lacks the credibility. Because these are just questions that I have. You know, and I'm open to be persuaded. I'm curious to hear what you have to say. I'll read a recap of it, you know, today or something or tomorrow morning. But I'm I'm not really sure. This It's kind of, you know what it reminds me of? It's a comment that uh, John McWhorter made when he was on a podcast uh, with uh, Glenn Lowry. Um, they were talking about wokeism, critical race theory, and and they're both black academics. Um, and McWhorter raised this point of, you know, look, what exactly is it that you're pushing for? It, like, for the telling of, he was speaking specifically about the 1619 Project and Hannah Nicole Jones, whatever, and, and uh, UNC Chapel Hill and all of that scandal at the time. And he said, do you, do you think that Americans don't know that slavery existed? And do you think that they believe that that was a good thing and they want to go back to that or something? I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much more information you expect Americans to know about slavery, considering sort of the woeful state of our education system. So, yes, I, I'm not sure if anybody like what happened on January 6th was a riot completely out of control. A lot of people did stupid, bad things. I condemned it at the time, absolutely. Because I condemned all of the violence going on in all of the cities, as I generally do. There's no problem for me holding a consistent standard on that. But uh, what more are you going for here? Just to say, Because what you, you seem to be making a case that maybe the people in charge of securing the Capitol ignored the threat. I don't know. Whatever. Cassidy Hutchinson is now saying that the president was mad that the crowd was uh, being suppressed. The numbers weren't so great on January 6th. He wanted a bigger crowd and he was blaming the security measures for keeping people out, (laughs) which is totally believable. Totally believable, right? Anyway, uh, yeah, we'll keep monitoring it. I don't. I'm going to make a prediction on this one. It's not a trial, so I can do it. It's not an election either. Um, people who already hate Trump, they're going to think this is explosive, and the people who love Trump are going to say this is nothing. That's just my initial read on it. I could be wrong. Kind of like Adam Schiff is about like everything. That's- Congressman Adam Schiff insisted last week that the January 6th committee had evidence of former President Donald Trump's involvement in an effort to overturn the uh, results of the 2020 election. He had a whole list right in his hand here. No, you can't see the list. No, 
It's right here, though. I have the list. Okay. Uh, he refused to reveal it because he didn't want to get ahead of the hearing. And that's why he went on to CNN to tell people that he has all of this evidence, but I don't want to get ahead of where my colleagues are on all of this. Like, dude, you just did. You just got ahead of everyone else. Schiff went on to claim that the system had only held because state and local officials had upheld their uh, had upheld their oath to the Constitution and they refused to go along with Donald Trump, which, by the way, that's one of the nice things about federalism. Been talking a lot about federalism over the last few weeks, you know, states and local uh, officials getting the say when the federal government doesn't have the power to do something right. This the beauty of the federalist model is that as originally intended, it pitted these authorities, these officials against one another at the different levels. And they did so. The founders recognized that humans being you know, pretty terrible, um, that when you give them some power, they're going to be very protective of their power. And so any kind of an encroachment on that power from another official in a different branch of government, right, it's going to get pushback. That was the concept. In fact, that's why the U.S. Senate was originally constructed with legislative appointments from the states, not popular elections. We've only been electing senators, what, since the, was it the early 1900s? For a hundred years or so, they were sent to the Capitol by the state governments. So that was designed to look out for the state's interests, right? They were representatives of the state that they came from. And so when they see the, they would see the federal government starting to encroach on their state, the state legislature would call them up and be like, hey, or I guess they would telegram them up and they'd be like, hey, uh, you should not be voting for any of this stuff that's going to take power away from the states. So it was more difficult, obviously, to get stuff uh, through. And then, of course, uh, when uh, we have the rise of progressivism, Woodrow Bleepin Wilson, anyway, uh, we get the election of senators popularly elected. And now the state legislative body, they don't have a representative up there. And so you have, and ever since then, you have this massive expansion of the federal government. Schiff says, just to be clear, or I'm sorry, Schiff says that the uh, the state officials upheld their oath, and that's the only reason it held. And Dana Bash at CNN says, just to be clear, you said you have evidence that the then president was involved in putting a fake slate of electors out there. Do you have evidence that he directed it? And Schiff says, you know, I don't want to get ahead of our hearing. We'll show during a hearing what the president's role was in trying to get states to name alternate slates of electors, how that scheme depended initially on hopes that the legislatures would reconvene and bless it, and he pressed forward with it anyway. And Dana Bash then says, will we see he directed it? Will we see he directed it? And then Schiff said, I don't want to get ahead of the the role, Uh, I guess, of the committee. Schiff took the same position, by the way, when he accused former President Trump of colluding with Russia in the lead up to the 2016 uh, presidential race, often claiming that he had evidence of collusion, but never revealing it publicly. Yet he is still treated 
as a credible guest for some reason. You know, at, at some point, you know, the trick me once, shame on you, trick me twice, shame on me, or as W used to say, you ain't going to trick me again. Like, at some point, reporters, when these guys crap on you, like, you're supposed to recognize that that is occurring, first of all, that they are taking advantage of you. They're using you. And you're supposed to not want to participate in that, unless maybe that's your thing. I don't know. But if it is your thing, well, then you're not a journalist anymore. Why does Adam Schiff get any kind of airtime on any of these shows? I do know the answer to that question. Yes, I do. <laughs> um, about two weeks ago, the J6 committee brought in J. Michael Luttig, distinguished former federal appellate judge, and Greg Jacob, an impressive lawyer who served as Vice President Mike Pence's chief counsel. Andy McCarthy, writing at National Review, said, quote, guided by committee questioning, they took aim at John Eastman, the former Chapman Law School dean who was Trump's private counsel and constitutional law guru in the aftermath of the election. It was Eastman who developed the far-fetched theory that Pence could control the outcome of the election or at least give Trump a chance to swipe an election he had lost. In the days leading up to January 6th, J- uh, uh, Jacob, Greg Jacob, extensively challenged John Eastman, his fellow University of Chicago Law School alum, on the details of this theory. Jacob recounted Eastman's admission that if it ever ended up in front of the Supreme Court, the former president would lose nine to nothing. That's what Eastman said. The guy who came up with the theory, he said that they would lose at the Supreme Court, 9-0. Judge Luttig, who, for whom Eastman served as a law clerk, analyzed Eastman's theory in a now-famous Twitter thread the day before the January 6th riots, and he concluded that it was wrong at every turn. Quote, the only responsibility and power of the vice president under the Constitution is to faithfully count the electoral votes that have been cast. Luttig's decision to go public, according to McCarthy, surely stiffened Mike Pence's resolve to resist Trump's pressure. McCarthy goes on to say, I believe what's unfolding in the committee hearings is a plausibility gap. In some, the committee's presentation of evidence and witnesses is very effectively demonstrating that Trump's actions were indefensible, that he's unfit for the presidency, and that he should not only have been impeached, but removed and disqualified from future office. And perhaps he would have been, If the House, instead of politicizing Trump's impeachment in an effort to tar all Trump supporters as white supremacists, maybe uh, if the House had done back in early 2021 the investigation that the committee is doing now. Still, the fact that Trump and his circle had monstrous ambitions does not prove that they had realistic prospects of actuating those ambitions. The Civil War, he says, was a constitutional crisis. The Capitol riot and the events leading up to it do not hold a candle to the crisis of the House divided in terms of severity, despite what our friends on the left and the media, but I repeat myself, uh, despite what they say. Not a constitutional crisis. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. 
Going over this piece at National Review by Andy McCarthy, former federal prosecutor, from about uh, 10 days ago or so. And he was talking about the di- you know, the hearing that focused on Mike Pence and, and the pressure that was on Pence. Uh, so let me be clear, uh, like Barack Obama. I don't know why. Anyway. Well, I mean, Biden says it too. Hey, Claire. So the gallows that they took the picture of and is used in all of the scary documentary films and stuff and all of the news stories and on the you know front page of the papers, whenever they want to convey how, you know, how bad this was, look at the gallows. They were going to hang Mike Pence. That was uh, that. That's a. It's not the scale. They got real close and took the picture, so it looks really tall, really big. But it was like this tiny little thing. It like fits in the back of a pickup truck. It's like a model. <laughs> it's a prop. It's a prop. You couldn't actually murder somebody, lynch somebody, off of that uh, model. That being said. And this is a question I ask people whenever they try to minimize the riot that did occur. Because I don't believe that this was just, you know, oh, people walking through the Capitol. No. I've seen enough of the videos over the last, you know, year or so. There are people engaged in very bad behavior, and I don't know who those people are. And uh, if you went in and started vandalizing, oh, let's say, I don't know, a police station in Seattle, for example— I would also want you to be prosecuted for those crimes, too, um, because I, I, I try to push back on the culture of criminality. See, I'm a, I'm more conservative on these things. I'm trying to conserve the institutions because I think they have value. But I do often ask folks who try to minimize what we saw, what what do you think would have happened if they had run into Nancy Pelosi in the hallway? What do you think would have happened if they had run into Mike Pence? The mob, as I mean, we've seen the videos of them, you know, beating the stuffing out of the Capitol Police, forcing their way through the building. And I'm just kind of curious when you get like 300 or so people all whipped up and angry, believing that what they're doing is, you know, going to save America. They believe that they that in the nobility and righteousness of their cause. And what do you think they would have done if they had come across Nancy Pelosi? That they would just would have stood around chanting at her or something? Just let her go on her way? I don't know. I don't have any idea what they would have done. I'm not saying I do. But there is a very real possibility that she could have been harmed, physically harmed. And I think to deny that is to deny a very realistic possibility. Had they run into Mike Pence? I'm not so sure. But it is also a possibility that some people would have assaulted him, not dragged him out to the model gallows. But it's quite possible that it could have gotten physical. It got physical with the cops. And I don't know that. I don't know what would have happened. That's the problem with mobs. I said the same thing during the 2020 summer of love, you know, when people were, you know, showing, you know, how woke they were and how culturally responsive and social, emotional learned they were 
by uh, burning down cities. I said the same thing. And by the way, I'm not so sure you get January 6th if you didn't have the summer of love. If you didn't have if you didn't have the BLM Antifa violence for a year where we were treated to these images of people just destroying the institutions of our civilization and uh, burning it down and facing zero repercussion while everybody's on lockdown due to COVID. Um, yeah, I don't know if you would have had the kind of pent-up riotous response on J6. But he goes on to say, as the testimony at the hearing demonstrated, Mike Pence was not asked to declare Trump to be the victorious president. He was asked to discount the electoral votes of a handful of states, which at most would have thrown the election over to the House, where it is highly unlikely that Trump would have won. Though Republicans nominally had a 26-23-1 advantage in congressional delegations, he would almost surely have lacked the votes. This was another part of the plan that was so poorly conceived. And by the way, I don't blame investigators or opponents for the poorly conceived plan, but this was a poorly conceived plan. The notion that just because Republicans had majority control of congressional delegations or state legislatures that they would perforce have voted in lockstep unanimity for Trump is misguided. He calls it wrongheaded. When Pence declined to discount electoral votes, the Trump fallback position was to ask him to delay the count for 10 days to give Trump a chance to pressure Republican majority legislatures in states that Biden won to invalidate the popular election and then award the electoral votes to Trump, right? But that wouldn't have worked either. On what planet do you suppose Democrats were just going to sit back and let that happen? Hello, Mark Elias. And you could say the name once. You just don't say it three times because then that conjures them up. Anyway, as Jonathan Adler has uh, pointed out, Nancy Pelosi could have suspended the joint session of Congress and stalled until Pence's term ended on January 20th, positioning her to ensure Biden taking office. But it wouldn't have come to that because the Republican-controlled legislatures would not have dared to try invalidating the popular votes in their own states, right? They would not have been inclined. They would not have had the votes of all or probably most Republicans. And if they were daft enough to forge ahead, they would have been blocked by Democrats and state law, right? I mean, think about it. Get the Republicans to overturn the vote of their own people. The framers designed it this way. Power is divided. It is diffused. And so no one actor can steal the presidency. To repeat one of my favorite observations about the system, we hope and expect to get honorable people in positions of power. But we don't rely on it. We rely on the Constitution, the Constitution's separation of powers and its checks and its balances. That's what we rely on. And if we get some honorable people, well, hey, that's gravy. But they truly are our representatives. They really do represent us. All right, I'm going to get to the Hunter Biden scandal, the growing scandal up next. 